Okay, now we're recording. So welcome to Teach Wonder. Yes, welcome to Teach Wonder, a podcast hosted by Ashley O'Neill and Julie Cunningham. So this story starts with a cold call, or a cold email, I should say. I'd been working at CMU for a bit, and I was feeling like I needed some training that was more focused on makerspace work. We were a STEM center, we had a makerspace, I had read a lot about what that meant, but I wanted some more experience from other people who were in this a similar position to me. A lot of professional development opportunities are amazing, um, but I was feeling that shift in my own professional career from classroom teacher to informal educator. And a lot of the trainings or programs or workshops that I was finding were really geared toward a classroom teacher. And I wanted to talk to the people who were in a maker space doing the things that we were doing. So I did what everybody does when they're looking for something. I Googled it. I was Googling other maker spaces and the program that Eric worked for at the time was at CU Boulder and it came up right away. It was more established than ours at the time, and it seemed to be a nice compliment to the work that we were doing. So I emailed. Um, while Eric has since moved on to running his own consulting company, the training and the time we spent together in Colorado has stuck with me for years. This episode is that experience in a bottle for you. I'll share some of my memories and the aha moments that I had when I first worked with Eric as a counterpoint to his expertise and stories. Okay. So my name is Eric Carpenter. I am the executive director and chief education designer for a small consulting firm called Rocky Mountain Education Design. We're currently based in Seattle, Washington, and we do work throughout the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Northwest. Eric was our guide to Colorado Makerspaces that week. We spent a lot of time out and about in the community. We got to see the college makerspace, but we also spent a lot of time with him. And when we first met him, I think the thing that struck me the most was his sideways entry into education. My background is actually an interesting one. I started off my career in construction, then transitioned into studying environmental science and earth science. This led me to my first teaching sort of career, which was actually a field guide and a naturalist for state parks. And that's where I actually fell in love with teaching, this idea of helping people understand place, connect with nature, and to fill them with all of the fun things that I've learned over the years. This outdoor naturalist focus meant something in our workshop, and it came up over and over again. Eric's ideas stay grounded in being real. His first time doing something in education was teaching people things that he was curious and passionate about, things that were beneath their feet or just off the path on their walk. When he brought that energy into the makerspace, it was exactly the same. Students should be learning skills to understand the world around them. They are capable of figuring things out. They can build and they can make and they can do. So at this point, you'll hear that Eric's career starts to shift a little bit more toward education. This led me to a career with the Board of Cooperative Educational Services in New York at an environmental education center. So we did a number of place-based programs, but I also had my first experiences working with schools. And I think that's where I really fell in love with teaching and the processes we associate with teaching and learning. So it wasn't until this point in his life that Eric decided to go back and get his master's and specialist degree in education. And I have to tell you, I just love that. I 
went directly from high school to college to be a teacher, graduated and got my first teaching job right away. And it was just really interesting for me to hear about all of the different experiences that Eric had had both in the professional workplace and his personal space that were not focused in teaching and learning that really brought a richness and a diverse mindset to how you approach teaching skills and teaching content and teaching curiosity. After the University of Idaho, we did a number of exciting jobs. We worked in outdoor experiential education, indoor experiential education, and eventually for public schools. This led me to working with some big national level programs, and eventually the University of Colorado at Boulder, which is where I started really leaning into STEM education. My work with the University of Colorado started off in environmental and place-based work, taking students and teachers outdoors and bringing the outdoors inside through experiential education activities, working in collaboration with researchers. I talked to a first year graduate student so who came through an education prep program, so has a bachelor's degree in education, and was going back for a master's in ed and a master's in science. And I was on the science advisory side of the committee. She was asking me, she said, you know, have you read John Dewey? I said, I have. Yeah, so that's the foundation for everything I do. She goes, why? I said, because I started with experiential education. It was the core of what I did. It's all we did. And because I started with a very Dewey model of giving kids experiences and constructive learning and creating this idea of put the experience first and make sure the content is there. It's scaffolded my whole career to this day. So makerspaces didn't start in education. Makerspaces were an idea that came from a collective group of hobbyists and professional makers who wanted to be able to share resources and tools and supplies and interests and hobbies. So they got together and created a collective space. They would gather and um, crowdsource for bigger tools and pay a rental fee together to share that space to make whatever it is they wanted to make. So when you hear about people who get into makerspaces and bring them into education, there's usually a story or an idea or a book or an experience that led them to become so passionate about makerspaces and children. Eric's is one of my favorites. I probably have the most interesting story of why and how I got into doing makerspaces from an informal education perspective. I was collaborating with a group of graduate students who designed prosthetics and um, biomechanical devices to help people who have certain limitations. I was working with this group of students and we were trying to figure out a way to have young learners, these would be gifted and talented learners in elementary and middle schools, really engage with the engineering design process that's involved in building prosthetics. We batted around ideas and batted around ideas. And one of the students finally said, well, couldn't we just let the students build a prosthetic? It would seem like that would be a good model to capture both the engineering design process, the nuts and bolts of what the content was, and a great connection to the core curriculum the students had to learn. So we put together our first makerspace type of activity. It was literally blood pressure cuffs and nuts and bolts and metal bars and springs and pulleys and even a little electronic winder. And the learners had to work as a team to create a biomechanical prosthetic device that would help support an elbow joint, but also allow it freedom of motion 
and to assist with springs or pulleys or this little motor, the lifting and raising of arms. In this case, while we were building this unit and experimenting with a few of our pilot groups, we realized that students didn't have the experiences needed to put things together with tools, to actually use tools to be able to build something. They just didn't have those sorts of experiences. So after sharing his why with us, Eric was always really intentional about giving us practical details about what it is he did next. So as I was listening to Eric explain his first makerspace to me, I was furiously jotting notes because I found these tips to be really practical and relevant when it came to us building our makerspace back in Michigan. So we built our first ever portable makerspace program. And this was back in the beginning of makerspaces when it was relatively new to have a designated space in a school that is for making and for engineering and for engineering design. So we created a portable system that had table-based activities at each station. So there was a table that it could saw wood with coping saws and melted, made a clamp system that allowed it to be literally safely clamped onto a table. They could clamp their wood to the table and then cut and use drills, power drills and hand drills in the elementary school. There's a station that has electronics and soldering irons and LEDs and wire and basic battery systems. There's a station that has sort of arts and crafts themed things, kind of uh, paper and pens and nuts and bolts and all sorts of interesting things. All the way through to some of the more advanced workshops that we ended up creating that had robots and makey-makey devices and photo origami. The idea really was to give students opportunities to create on their own in a free pattern to form the foundation for their making. This is one of my biggest takeaways when I talked to Eric. He spoke a lot about giving students autonomy over what it was they were making. And it was about the making and not about what their end product was. And so he made sure that inside of every makerspace experience that he designed, he had opportunities for students to just explore and try the materials out for the sake of their own learning. And I thought that was so great and interesting. Now, before you panic and think that it was a free for all, he did have some great parameters put in place. So we ran it as a, okay, let me show you how to use all these tools safely. Let me show you what you might be able to do with this. And your job is to make something. You can work together, work in a group. What I really need you to do is have experience creating something and using these tools as a hard skill. The soft skills we would apply later in other workshops. And it was amazing. We did about 10,000 learners through there using coping saws and power drills and exacto knives and soldering irons sometimes. And we never had an injury, which is amazing. A lot of teachers are concerned about this, the risk and the liability we associate with that. When properly facilitated, when given clear instructions on how to use the tools, the kids' approach was always great. The learners really engage with it, and they learn some fascinating things. Eric also had a knack for pointing out spots in which abstract content could be taught in really practical ways. You try to build a wooden box, all four sides are not the same size. It seems like a fundamental thing, but when do learners have an opportunity to experience that? 
This was a really important moment for me, a moment when I realized that Eric's sideways path into teaching was such a benefit. My education taught me that I should teach my students about shapes and then measurement in the fourth grade, right? And then I'd tell them that someday they'll eventually need this math and they might apply it to building their own box someday when they're older. His experience and mindset had him teaching kids to use tools and build boxes now with the readiness to teach them all of the math along the way and the ability to ground it in something real. In the first year we did the makerspace, we realized both teachers and students have very limited experience using tools. We have a lot of learners who, and teachers too, who had never used a hammer, never used a screwdriver. So getting over that hump was the first piece. Hey, just become familiar with it. Try it out. Okay, you tried to build something. Awesome. Let's improve on that. How would you do it again? What's that next step? You had more time. What would you do? This was another aha for me. So tool use is a skill set and making decisions about when and how students and teachers will practice that skill is important. I've seen it both ways. Some people say that students will pick up and learn tools along the way to reach their goal. Eric held tool use as a skill set as important as content. He also helped me to understand that great learning can happen through tool exploration. So for him, when students had little practice coming in, the tools became the practice and the final outcome was great and it was also secondary. And the great thing about that particular open-ended makerspace with very limited structure is the learners can't be wrong. It's about experience. It's about giving them opportunity to develop and practice those hard skills. So really, it didn't necessarily matter what they made. Could be a game, could be a flashlight, could be a little wooden box. The point was actually the making and that sense of empowerment. Like a lot of places, the success that Eric's team saw for students became the start of something bigger. So that original open-ended makerspace model became the foundation for a lot of the programming that we did, both with the university's outreach program, but as my company developed, we really latched onto this. And it became almost what we were known for and what we did. Here, you'll hear Eric use that second approach I mentioned. Students have a large, complex goal, and he gives them the basics up front, but then lets them really learn much of it on their own along the way. You wouldn't believe some of the things these learners would come up with. In an hour and a half program, we would teach them how to use a makey-makey, the fundamentals of Scratch, enough to move forward and be able to be successful in coding. And they could literally create a few examples would be a soccer court with little players. And when they would kick the ball through the goal, it would cheer. The, the Mickey Mickey would close a circuit or they would close a circuit. The Mickey Mickey would pass it through the computer and scratch would create a cheering sound. It sounds like a very simple thing to do, but for a learner to cons- or a team of learners to conceptualize, okay, we need something to kick the ball. We need the ball to conduct electricity. So it's you wrapped in foil or something like that. And when it hits the back of the goal, it completes the circuit. I want to point out that the tools here are a little bit different. So there's a little less of a safety concern about students using hand tools. A lot of these are digital um, coding pieces or simple electronics. And that 
um, hacking or figuring out electronics and coding materials on your own really lines up with some tenets of computational thinking. So there's some clever decision-making that Eric is using here to say, this is a time when students should explore without much support, guidance and support. And then this is when I really need to teach a tool and how to use that tool directly. Another important point here is when Eric talks about the divergence that happens within groups. That also allows a little diversity in experiences. Some of the learners are more focused on the tactile side of things, while other learners are more focused on the coding and selecting the sounds and doing the recording. But it all has to be integrated. It all has to happen together. And that's really exciting. When we think about group work as adults, it works when we allow individuals to use their strengths and interests to benefit the whole team. We don't expect all the members of a work collaboration to make every aspect of a project. We lean into and benefit from everyone's strengths. It's efficient. Projects like these also allow for the same model. Sometimes I know we worry that student A didn't code as much as student B because they were hardwiring the soccer ball. So did they really learn the same standards as the rest? It does, however, really allow the students to function in a healthy and realistic group model, where student A is exercising their understanding of coding by building a complementary component to work with the code created by the group. So while Eric may not expect that every student coded every aspect of a project, he does expect that they all communicate together. And you hear that in the really clear expectations that he lays out to students at the very beginning of any project. With the disclaimer, then, I would tell teams, openly tell them as part of the directions to the activities, I'm going to come around and ask your group a few questions at the end. And I'm going to warn you, part of this process is ideation, sharing ideas. I come around to your team and ask, did you get to share your idea? Did you get to share your idea? And one learner did not get to share their idea. You have to start again. You need deliberate processes here to make sure everybody feels included. And the learners reacted really well to it. They could resonate. It resonated with them. That sense of belonging to a group and accomplishing something together and what not being included feels like. Most people know what that feels like. So when you set them up for success and tell them that we need a process that deliberately avoids it, it does. They come right up to it and they engage and grab onto that, which is really powerful. There's a rhythm to the flexibility Eric offers in his programs. He lays out the necessary parameters. So we would, again, present them with the drone, basic instruction, how to code it, how to fly it safely, give them some parameters to work inside. Provides any direct skill instruction relating to a new tool. Then show them the makey-makey, how the scratch interface worked. And leaves the intended outcomes open-ended. And literally open it up to them. What would you like to do he relates the work that students do to some of the foundational concepts that help him build his programs from the beginning. And the goals were always the same. Demonstrate engineering design. Show me that you guys can work together. Take an idea or a number of ideas, mash them together and decide, which is often the hardest part. I want to wrap up this first episode with some thoughts on failure. When asking kids to try something new or to be a creator, we're really expecting things to go wrong a lot. And that doesn't often align with a student's definition for success. So it can be a real trick to build in security to try and to help them redefine what success means. Eric's approach is simple. In our case, we 
But a disclaimer on the front side, it's really about learning. It's about giving you guys hard skills. So whether it works in the end is not the most important part. The process is the part. The most challenging time in any makerspace is that first prototype. And when that test fails and the students start to go down the rabbit hole of who did what and oh gosh, and it's your, it's a, you know, it's a team. It's everybody. But what do we, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not important. What are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? How could we address this challenge? And to almost, I hate to use the word train them, but to train them to go right back into the design cycle again. And probably the most, one of the most important pieces is always reiterating that the experience doesn't end here. So if this was a coding and robotics, we would always end with, sure, this is Edison. This is the fundamental coding. Here's where you can go with this. Something truly inspiring. If this is the Tello EDU drones, we would show them high-end drones and drone mapping and all of these interesting applications. So the students could see where they are and understand where they're at right now and maybe potentially see a pathway of getting to those next steps and where they need to be. Do you hear that two-pronged approach to failure? Normalizing failure while honoring that it's an uncomfortable experience for most of us, making it about the process and the learning and encouraging students to re-enter the design cycle to work on another solution or another approach to, to their original solution. Also, though, there's this embedded exposure to the idea of more. Sharing extensions is sometimes thought of to be the card that we play for our learners who need a challenge or who are ready for the next step. But here, sharing the idea that the process is never ending serves a different purpose. It frees students from the neat and tidy wrap up that they're familiar with and reminds them that life is a work in progress. iPhones, for example, are functional, but new models are proof that the process is never done. Helping students see that their final draft can always be the launching point to their next iteration frees everybody from the pressure of finishing something. One of my favorite parts of Makerspaces is how it has redefined failure for me. If everything can be improved upon, then failure is really just a stepping stone to a new draft and a great learning experience. So that's a wrap on Eric's thoughts and my reflections for this episode. The second part is available now, and in it, you'll hear Eric discussing how he thinks makerspace learning should happen in schools. He'll share his direct experience as creating STEM and makerspace models in schools, and I think you'll be surprised at his approach. He'll share more insights into how students learn in this format and several really great stories from his own work with students. Links to Eric's company and some of the tools mentioned today are in the show notes. Transcripts for all episodes are available on our website.